my name is uh, Ewan Morgan. I'm a professor of U.S. studies in the Institute <coughs> of the Americas, and it'll be my uh, pleasure to chair tonight's uh, event. Uh, um, um, well, it's my delight to uh, introduce the three speakers tonight. Uh, um, the gentleman on my left will go first. Uh, this is Tim Stanley. <coughs> uh, Tim is uh, with the Daily Telegraph. Uh, he uh, reported on the campaign, uh, just come back from the United States. Uh, he's also a historian of note. He's written a number of books, uh, uh, including uh, a study of the uh, Carter and Kennedy campaign uh, for the 1980 Democratic nomination, uh, a, a study about Patrick Buchanan, and a study of uh, Hollywood politics, among others. Uh, second of goal will be... Uh, 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 Dr. Claude Harrington, uh, who uh, is a uh, senior lecturer in American politics at uh, De Montfort University, has written extensively on the U.S. presidency and is currently the chair of the American politics group. And uh, the uh, third person who will speak tonight is on my left, uh, uh, Tom Packer. Uh, Tom Packer holds uh, an Oxford D. Phil. Uh, he, uh, he is the world's leading expert on Senator Jesse Helms of North Carolina, the subject of his PhD thesis. Uh, Tim. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ewan, and thank you for having me here. I'm going to speak today so much as a historian, but as a journalist who was there in the middle of the fog of war, to the fact that when you are in the fog of war, you only see directly what's in front of you. And it'll take some time, maybe four to eight years, before we really grasp the meaning of what happened last week and what its impact will be for America and the world. That said, it's extraordinary being there how wrong one can prove to be with just minutes. Uh, I was sent to America to largely cover the Trump campaign and to be at the Hilton Hotel for the evening of the election with the expectation that I was covering the losing campaign. I had actually written a 1,500-word very good article about <laughs> why Donald Trump lost <laughs> and why the Republican Party is a mess and will never get the presidency ever again. So I'm going to revisit that mistake and why I was wrong at the end of my talk. And I, I think the fact that I was wrong uh, is significant. Um, what I'm going to do is, is talk through what I saw and I hope that that helps bring some clarity about what it is that happened. To begin with, I, I started covering this campaign at the Republican Convention in Ohio. It was a disastrous convention. It was a farce, in fact. So many things went wrong. It turned out that Melania's speech was eerily close to that of Michelle Obama's. As several of the delegates misbehave in the hall, one of the speakers, Ted Cruz, declined to actually endorse the nominee during his speech. We'd not seen a convention like that since really the 1964 Republican convention when there was open fighting between the Goldwater conservatives and the more liberal forces of Nelson Rockefeller. And it seemed as though one was present at a sinking ship. Doubly so because Trump seemed to have put all his money on his own personal success to the point that he delivered his speech with the words Trump behind him. And everything was in gold and everything looked like it was an advert for Trump enterprises rather than for the Republican Party. The Republican Party had been captured. He wasn't going to compromise with it. He wasn't going to water down his language. In fact, the day after, 
his speech at the convention, uh, he took to the airwaves to denounce Ted Cruz and to repeat the conspiracy theory that Ted Cruz's father was involved in the assassination of John Kennedy. So watching that, it's understandable that we all thought that by the rules of ordinary politics, this was a campaign that was nosediving. And indeed, the comparisons with 1964 were tempting not only to say that there had been some sort of grassroots rebellion against the establishment, not only that this was a maverick campaign that wasn't going to compromise its message, but also we assumed that it was facing defeat because, it, because the candidate, Donald Trump, had said things and done things which went too far for the average American voter. So that was the assumption that I had uh, when I flew into Washington about three weeks ago to cover the campaign on the ground. Now, when I arrived, the national polls put Hillary Clinton ahead by three or four points. Rarely much more than that, by the way. But that was discounted by most people because Hillary Clinton, it was believed, had a rock-solid advantage in the Electoral College. For decades, the Democrats have been able to count pretty pretty solidly on the Electoral College votes of places like Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. And it was assumed that because Donald Trump was so unappealing to Mexicans because of the things he had said about illegal immigration, he said that many illegal immigrants are rapists and murderers, it was assumed that he would lose the southwestern part of the country, that he would play poorly in those older parts of the country which were becoming more liberal and more metropolitan, like North Carolina and Virginia, and of course he wouldn't stand a hope in hell of breaking into places like Michigan and Pennsylvania. That said, when I looked at Trump's campaign schedule, I was surprised to discover that he wasn't going to many of the states that we expected him to. He wasn't spending much time in Ohio. Hillary Clinton, uh, who had essentially taken a week off the campaign trail uh, while Donald Trump was dealing with a video that had turned up from the past in which he appeared to brag about sexually assaulting women, Hillary took almost a week off the campaign trail, but when she did go to campaign, she was going to places like Ohio. And that was interesting. Perhaps that betrayed something that both campaigns knew, that Trump was taking a risk and going to places like Wisconsin and Michigan. Hillary, meanwhile, was still trying to keep places like Ohio in play. Anyway, I followed the two campaigns around dutifully. I snuck in past the Secret Service and I was searched from head to toe and witnessed the various rallies, and I think they were quite illustrative of something that was going on. To take a typical Hillary Clinton rally. Interestingly, the demographic was not what I expected. Her rallies, the people at her rallies, looked like the kind of people I imagine would have turned out for Richard Nixon in 1972. Middle class, college educated, uh, largely white, uh, professionals or people going on to a professional, to a profession. There was something clean cut about her crowds. They were enthusiastic and the crowds were quite large. I would say about 8,000 people I went to see in North Carolina uh, at Raleigh and perhaps some people were saying upwards of 10, 12,000 people turned out for her on her final night in Philadelphia. But while they were enthusiastic, they weren't wild. They weren't wildly enthusiastic. Plus, Clinton, I am told, didn't get big crowds at the beginning of her campaign, 
but it started to try to draw people in by inviting people like John Bon Jovi, Bruce Springsteen, the President, Michelle Obama, and Bill Clinton to come and speak with her instead. By contrast, Donald Trump was lucky if he showed up with the local preacher. I mean, really, that's not an exaggeration. Uh, he had Ted Nugent at one of his rallies who caused a stir by grabbing his genitals and saying something about kissing them. So essentially, there was a very different approach towards what would get people out. Hillary Clinton, I discovered when she spoke, was pretty bad at it. Uh, when she is trying to make a point forcefully, she sounds a bit like a Dalek. Um, that's a cruel observation, but it's important because there was really no connection between her and her audiences. They were enthused about beating Donald Trump. I did not sense from my interviews with people who turned out that they were particularly enthused about her. Even the women, which was a surprise because the narrative of the campaign was that this was a chance to put a woman in the White House. A very good illustration of the nature of the Clinton campaign was in Philadelphia. This was the last night of the campaign and she showed up with Barack and Michelle and Bill and her daughter and she had lots of rock stars and tens of thousands of people turned out. It was extraordinary. But the layout was bizarre. All the people stood on Independence Mall facing north towards where the candidate was going to stand. The candidate was hidden behind a wall of glass to stop people from shooting her. That's understandable. I never saw that for Trump, by the way. But that's understandable. The president was there too, so it was probably something the Secret Service insisted on. But the strange thing was that the candidate didn't face south towards the people she was speaking to. She faced east towards the media and the TV cameras. That way, there were no people between her and the TV cameras, so they would get the best shot of her. The result was that anyone watching this on C-SPAN would watch it and think she was directly addressing people. She wasn't. She was directly addressing the media. The people were actually locked out of this strange dialogue with the media. And at one point during the speech, she said, I greatly regret the tone of this election. And someone shouted out, it's not your fault, Hillary. And the crowd went wild. Any other politician I have ever seen in my life would have said, thank you, or back at you, or something like that. Instead, Hillary, this won't be picked up on the podcast, I, I'll, I'll say that I'm shrugging my shoulders. Hillary sort of went, eh. She couldn't do it. She had no star power, no charisma, no connection with the voters. I began to sense that what Hillary actually was was an old-fashioned liberal candidate. She was a Mondale or a Dukakis. She was someone whose instincts were centrist and wanted her party to be centrist, but during the primaries had been forced to the left and found herself pushing a message she wasn't entirely comfortable with. And her way of trying to get people to the, polls, vote, to the polls to support her was that old 70s and 80s way of getting people to vote for you, which is to treat them as constituencies. Everything she said was directed at getting blocks of people to the voting booth, not individuals. This for women, this for gay people, this for African Americans, this for Latinos. And all the time, this is why you must vote. You must vote because you'll be betraying that constituency group. Now, by contrast, a Trump rally was unlike anything I'd ever been to. It's extraordinary. Uh, for instance, uh, I went to Pittsburgh. Uh, there was at least 12 or 15,000 people. The queue was so long, it snaked all the way around the auditorium, around the aircraft hangar that he was speaking in, that you couldn't tell where it began and where it ended. Uh, the people who introduced him were local people. It was interesting to note the subjects that came up. Not so much jobs. Transgenderism repeatedly came up at Donald Trump's rallies. 
cultural conservatism was very important for the people who came out to his rallies. God came up, dealing with ISIS came up. I heard less about free trade, although people were critical of it, those who I interviewed. Then eventually the candidate would arrive. You'd know he was coming because you'd hear the strains of God bless the USA. And the hangar would slowly peel back, revealing the Trump claim. He's a showman. He's also very funny. This is something you don't tend to get from the TV. But he has a kind of a mocking, sardonic, I hear Hitler was quite similar, a mocking, <laughs> sardonic tone, which is rather surprising. And immediately, it, it sounds witty. It sounds like he has a sort of earthy wit. For instance, in North Carolina, uh, there was a guy in the crowd who shouted out, I fucking love you, Donald! And Donald turned towards him and said, okay, okay, I don't know what to make of that. There's a guy, there's a guy, he's quite big, he says he loves me. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. I didn't expect this in North Carolina. <laughs> he was quite funny. And he spoke directly to the issues, just as I'd seen him done at the convention. It was all negative. It was all pessimistic. 90% of his speeches were about how rubbish America was. Only 10% was about how he would make it great again. And, of course, there was almost no mention of how he would make it great again. Come election night, I was dispatched to his election victory party, which was in the depressing concrete block that is the Hilton Midtown. I'm convinced he hired it to save money. Uh, the ballroom is quite small. The people who were guests... I saw one significant Republican, Pete King, the slightly bonkers uh, representative from New York. Otherwise, there were no significant names. I would say the average age was under 30, a lot of teenage boys in baseball caps. It was not a party full of people who ever thought they were going to win. They were just as surprised as the press were when they did win, except their reaction was very different. <laughs> and in fact, it was illustrative of something that has happened in America that the press looked so glum and so near suicidal, and the Trump people looked so elated. It was significant that there was really almost no one within the press train who had sympathy or even necessarily empathy for Trump and the issues he was pushing. There was a strange dialogue that was taking place on the internet or in people's private lives that was not taking place in mainstream media, and that is one of the reasons why we missed it. To sum up, why did the two big questions are, why did he win and why did she lose? That might sound obvious, but actually the dynamic here is more complicated than we're used to. Ordinarily, one looks back on an election and you say, the issue is, how did he do it? How did Reagan win in 80? Well, it's obvious how he did it because Jimmy Carter was very unpopular, there was a recession. But here, those two things are fairly equally weighted. She had to lose it. She did something wrong because she was way ahead in the polls and Trump's campaign was, was appallingly badly run. So she had to, has to have done something wrong to have lost. And I'm afraid I think it comes back to her personality and the nature of her political identity, that she was so unpopular, so mistrusted, and she made so many mistakes in the issues that she chose to focus on, and also where she chose to campaign. Why did he win? That is more complicated. He touched upon something in the American psyche, some deep unhappiness that he was able to articulate, and a part of me suspects that any other Republican couldn't have. But bear this in mind. I did write an article saying that he lost and why she won. Imagine yourself in an alternative dimension where, for the sake of about 30,000 votes spread across Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, 
She won and he lost. Then we'd be saying something very different about this election, about how it shows that one can be only so right-wing and not go any further. We would say that it was a demographic election. We would say that it shows the power of rising groups of people, particularly Latinos and Asian Americans. So for the sake of a few thousand votes, we'd be having a very different conversation. And she did win the popular vote. So I do not think there's been a revolution in the sense of America as a whole changing its mind or moving a new direction as one. Rather, this election has acted as a snapshot of the culture, society, and economy of America. It is incredibly divided. It is not speaking to each other. And it has reached a point where, if it is not necessarily physically violent, it is verbally violent. And that was the most troubling thing about the election. Uh, one final anecdote. The strangest thing I have ever experienced is to be part of a tiny press pack of maybe 20 people, overwhelmingly from New York, probably, 20 people behind a steel barrier as about 15,000 Trump supporters get bored, turn on you, and start shouting, lock them up, and CNN sucks. It was very strange. The hatred wasn't just directed at her, it was directed at us and America's democratic and media institutions. And that's something that America's going to have to address. Thanks. Okay, I'm going to follow on from um, Tim's um, opener with maybe a bit of a more specific focus. Um, I was sort of sitting there in the week thinking, what? What strands can I take from the, 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 the election and the outcome and that because it's such a sort of a, a, a broad topic at the moment. And one of the um, media items that caught my eye was from Newsweek the other day, and they ran a story headlined, the, president, uh, the presidential election was a referendum on gender and women lost. So I read it and it had lots of interesting material. And I sort of thought, okay, well the election is actually a referendum on a lot of things, you know, gender is just one of them. But for the purpose of choosing a strand this evening, that's what I've chosen to, to go with. Um, so in sort of thinking and reading and, 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 and mulling over this topic, you know, the first sort of challenge was to push back the, the social media avalanche of, of responses over, over the past week to, to, to everything that's happened. Um, you know, the liberal wailing and moaning, because there has been so much of it, um, so I tried to sort of uh, shelve that and look at, you know, what does this mean now? What has happened um, and what might it mean going forward? And I know, obviously, again, going back to what Tim said at the beginning, this is very speculative because we don't know. Nobody seems to know at this point where, where everything's going to go. Um, but I think the one certainty that I feel I can sort of say um, fairly unequivocally is the idea that, you know, Trump the candidate and very possibly Trump, the president, has and will continue to frame a backward narrative when it comes to women. So that's kind of my, my starting point, if you like. Um, so, yeah, there's just a little visual reminder of, of where he's coming from in terms of his approach, and that may be a little bit of a cheap shot. It's a relatively old photo, but I think we can still draw some conclusions from it. Um, just a quick mention of you know, how women actually did vote. Um, some of my students gave a presentation on this very topic this afternoon and I mean they, they were I think that the, the, the fact that they found most astounding was um, that 53% of white 
women voted for Trump. Um, th- that surprised me, I have to say. In, in fact, pretty much all of this surprised me. Maybe not so much, quite a lot, really a lot, really a lot. Um, so it's kind of a lot to take in and to try and um, comprehend, I suppose. Um, lots of polls have shown that, you know, approximately, roughly, 70% of voters said that Trump's treatment of women bothered them, but it wasn't necessarily enough to make them not vote for him. They were making their decisions on whether to vote for him or not on sort of other issues, if you like. Um, a majority of or, well, almost a majority of voters, I suppose, decided, you know, not to flock to the woman who could have broken the glass ceiling. She was not the one for them. And there was a lot of kind of feminist chit-chat on on chat rooms and that saying, okay, you know, yes, a woman, definitely, just not that woman. You know, so there was a kind of a a contradiction there. And there was one um, interesting bit of material from Celinda Lake, who's a, a Democrat poster, and she said that basically the party expected women to just sort of rally around pretty unconditionally and not necessarily look too closely beyond their candidate other than the fact that she was female and finally there was going to be a woman breaking the glass ceiling. You know, in a way that you had a a fairly unconditional rallying around Obama in 2008, for example, but this wasn't the case because Clinton had so many negatives and, you know, she was a far, far more controversial and flawed and um, challenging and challenged candidate, I suppose. you know, going back to the 90s, you have Gallup polls showing that a vast majority of Americans said that they were actually okay with the prospect of um, voting for a, a female president. Um, so Hillary's lack of appeal has been dissected, you know, relentlessly in, uh, of late. Um, you know, she's too establishment, she's too predictable, she's too crooked, she's too female, she's too much of a Clinton, whatever, you know, you tick your box, tick all of the boxes, whatever, she didn't make it. Um, I mean, there's, the, the, there's sort of... <coughs> bile directed towards her going back to the 1970s. I mean, it is difficult to unpick the sort of the uh, emotive and irrational anti-Clinton sentiment to a list of why you might not think that she was the best candidate. You know, they, 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 there's some overlap, but there's also a, a, a divide between those two things, I think. Um, so in terms of, you know, looking at Clinton's positions on, you know, what you could term women's issues, and I know that sort of narrows it a bit. Meryl Streep says women's issues are everybody's issues, and I, I go with that. But just for, for kind of the, 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 the sake of some bullet points, um, you know, her positions on the issues were categorically progressive. The same can't be said of Trump. And so these are, you know, some of the issues. Obviously, it's not everything, of course, but these are ones that sort of got mentioned along the way in the campaign. Um, <coughs> lots of people dismissed much of what he said, or what Trump said as banter. You know, it's not to be taken seriously. It's the rhetoric on the stone, blah, 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 etc. But there were, there were some things... Um, are some issues that were sort of repeatedly uh, uh, referred to that you think, okay, well, he's going to find it difficult to kind of roll back from these. (coughs) Um, Reproductive rights is is the most significant one. Um, There's issues there to do with, you know, um, uh, public funding for Planned Parenthood and other such organisations. he said before and after his victory. And this is interesting because obviously, you know, what you say on the campaign trail might be taken with a, a bucket of salt, but he said it again um, since last week um, that he would allow the issue of abortion to be rolled back to the individual states. And that obviously then gets, you know, extremely complicated. 
Um, I found a letter uh, that he wrote in September um, to pro-life leaders outlining his pro-life, what he calls his pro-life coalition. And there's like a bullet point uh, list of what he will do to kind of promote the pro-life agenda. Um, not to go into it all now, but the, the, the reason to mention it is that I thought it's much harder to roll back from the specific content of a letter that you have sent out to influential individuals than for some off-the-cuff rhetoric that you might give on the campaign trail. So he's kind of, in some ways, set himself up now to have to deliver on, on, on quite a lot of that. Um, things like defunding Planned Parenthood and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, in terms of maternity pay, there is actually something positive to say, which I was pleased to to see um, uh, on the campaign trail and also very clearly stated on his website, um, he says that he would offer, his administration would offer birth and adoptive mothers six weeks paid maternity leave. Now, you may know that the US is the only developed nation in the world with no guaranteed um, paid leave of any kind, kind for, um, in, in relation to maternity. Um, so this would be a great leap forward in many ways. I mean, Clinton, just as a kind of a, to offer a balance, she had said, she said she was going to offer 12 weeks, but whatever. I mean, at least he was on the page of offering something which others before him um, hadn't. Um, if you're going to sort of criticize the, the, the maternity offer, um, it was specifically for women. There was no, so sort of same-sex male couples, you know, they're, they're not in this picture from Trump, but whatever, you know, it's a start. Um, the gender pay gap, he didn't say anything particularly controversial about that. He made a few comments, but there was no um, sort of, you know, strong rhetoric either way. Um, taxation was an issue because, um, what did he do? Oh yeah, he said he would rewrite the tax code so his family's earning less than a quarter of a million dollars a year could claim childcare um, prior to um, that bit of their salary being taxed or whatever, which, you know, is pretty much how it is over here, but again, it's a great leap forward if this isn't what they had before. Um, so all of these things, um, he, if you saw the CBS interview the other day that he gave, and he specifically talked about same-sex marriage, and he said he wasn't going to go back on that, and interestingly, he mentioned a few times that, um, you know, this is being decided by the courts, therefore, end off nothing more to say. So I thought, okay, that's quite cut and dry, that's you know, a good thing, depending on your perspective. Um, but he sort of contradicted himself then when it came to uh, reproductive rights, because he said, you know, this is something where I would appoint a conservative uh, Supreme Court justice, and then we will roll the abortion issue back to the individual state. So that's, that's the really controversial one, I think, up at the top. And then the bottom one is, I mean, it's a, a bit of a general catch-all, but... It's important in terms of, you know, if you look at things like, um, what was I looking through last night? You know, uh, domestic violence figures, that kind of stuff. They're, they're really worryingly high in the US. Um, so the, the kind of the general attitude, the general uh, tone and rhetoric coming from the top, I think they're really important. And he hasn't yet um, given much sort of comfort, I suppose, to women, that the tone and rhetoric is going to be respectful or progressive or... or supportive or anything um, along those lines. Um, I mentioned the Supreme Court in terms of, you know, that's been such a huge hook for him with the religious right in terms of 
Um, you know, there's a gap on the, on the Supreme Court bench. It's needed filling for ages. Obama's choice hasn't been taken seriously. And he has promised somebody who will sort of fit the bill um, for the religious right. Obviously, there are two other um, uh, judges on the bench who are sort of, you know, not spring chickens, shall we say. So, I mean, there's, there's a real chance that he could fill one, definitely one, possibly two, even three Supreme Court positions if he was there for, for four or eight years. Um, if you think of Obama, he had two positions filled within two years. So it can happen, depending on the health and well-being of, of those um, that are there. So that's something that's gotten a lot of coverage, but I thought there's, there's kind of more to it than that. If you think also that he is responsible for appointing, appointing justices to the lower courts, that's not the sort of stuff that makes the, the media over here, because it's a bit, you know, uh, well, it's just kind of further down the food chain, I suppose. But I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of appointments to be made. Um, I looked up to see how many um, appointments President Obama had or is still in the process of making uh, on the lower courts. And the number was 650 lower court justices. Now, that's the stuff that kind of pans out more on a day-to-day -day level. You know, not everything makes it to the Supreme Court. So this is the more, you know, year-in, year-out, day-in, day-out kind of stuff that is really going to matter to people on the ground, if you like, whereas the Supreme Court is like the kind of the, the last hurrah, if you like, for, for, for any piece of, um, for any item to be, to be discussed. Um, so all of this, I was thinking, you know, what, what, what does this mean now for the direction of travel of, of the country, uh, politically, um, in terms of, of women, and obviously the kind of the, 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 the white, wider society as well. And I mean, it does seem to me that Trump's America will be a more inward-looking America, maybe even a meaner America. I think that's, that's the kind of the, the, the sense that one is getting now. I mean, perhaps all the campaign rhetoric will melt away and we'll see the pragmatist emerging in 2000. But it's a little bit hard to put that genie back in the bottle completely. Um, so I am you know, mindful that the sort of the, the lie of the land isn't particularly positive at the moment. And the campaign was run and won in a kind of a post-truth era. And we have this big divide between, like as Tim mentioned, the kind of the, you know, you read your liberal newspapers and you hang out with your liberal friends or the opposite over here. And there's never the twain shall meet in the middle. Um, so I was trying to think of something positive to finish on. So I did find something. Um, or I found some people. Um, basically, you know, all, so much of the media attention over here has been on, on the presidency and who's won the Oval Office. But there are a lot of congressional victories that have occurred. And obviously, depending on your perspective, in, in, in my opinion, you know, these are good developments. Um, you have a pretty, this isn't all of them. These are just the ones that would fit on my page. Um, you know, some good examples of progressive females getting um, elected to high office, and there are some firsts, you know, a Somali candidate, um, an Indian American, um, Vietnamese, you know, so th th there are leaps forward, and I thought, it, there's more to all this than how many female bums there are on seats. I mean, that's a bit of a crass way to kind of measure progress or, or, or positivity or whatever. I'm very aware of that. It's much more about how gender will play out in the kind of the overall policies of the administration and what women can expect from a Trump presidency. Um, I did conclude that right now there's not a whole lot to be encouraged by or about in terms of Team Trump. But I also thought, you know, if the power of the presidency is the power to persuade, then there is kind of 
quite a decent amount of opposition out there to resist negative persuasion or maybe to sort of, you know, offer their own persuasion in response and reach some kind of meaningful um, compromises with him going forward. Um, one, th one thing um, uh, that happened in terms of this election is people got a lot, particularly, but I would say, people in you know, sophisticated places like here and Western Europe got a lot that they've been asking for for years. So they asked for a Republican candidate who wasn't really tied to the religious right, who didn't look like he was opposing his religious views on people, who was comfortable with a sizable government, who didn't have some unsophisticated American attitude, a more European attitude towards sexual liaisons. And they got them, so obviously it's getting loads of positive publicity for all the people who complained about George W. Bush and Ronald Reagan, who are so much happier with the president they have now. And I suppose it's one of the things that they showed in life, that you um, be careful what you wish for, because you might get it. Um, and you could say the same could be said of Hillary Clinton, I'm really willing to bet. If she was told that she was allowed to choose a Republican candidate to run against, she would have chosen Donald Trump. And for winning, that might even have been the right candidate. But she didn't win, so I suspect she rather regrets that now. Um, very briefly, because I think, partly because I think Tim was very helpful on that, why it's so amazing, because I think it's important to stand back. One way of looking at it is, you know, Trump lost the popular vote, he only just won, the economy's not massively great, so... But actually, this is absolutely amazing... Um, he had, in many ways, an appalling and badly organised campaign. He, not, both the previous Republican candidates for president, both previous Republican presidents didn't vote for him. Um, he had unprecedented opposition from the media. So he was opposed by more newspapers than any Republican candidate in the history of that party. Um, and supported by, even more to the point, supported by less. Um, he was overwhelmingly um, outspent. He had... Um, he made a series of gaffes, um, which I think it can be fair to be said to be unprecedented while the campaigns actually be going on by any Republican presidential candidate ever. So in that context, I think what's amazing is he's won. I think Tim's quite right. We shouldn't treat this as some kind of landslide. But in a sense, given the enormous number of personal flaws Mr. Trump had, um, which are highly connected to his personal personality, it almost suggests that somebody who combined his kind of agenda with a more easy-to-manage personality might have won by a landslide. So I think in that context, it starts looking a lot more of a remarkable achievement and needs a lot more explaining. So one fact is, how on earth did he win the primary? And I, I would, um, which again is amazing, there's been two Republican candidates for president in the last 80 years who've never held high political office. One of them was in exceptional circumstances, but there were virtually no other prominent Republicans in America at that point because it was in 1940 when they'd just been flattened. The other had played, was Dwight Eisenhower, who played a small role, a significant role in a minor military conflict known as World War II. <coughs> so uh, Donald Trump's very different for that. And I would say it comes down to several issues. One is just sheer amount of media attention. He was covered, this is rough, but more or less correct, about ten times more than all his rivals in the Republican primary put together. So the fact he didn't have that much fundraising until very late in the day, the fact his campaign wasn't organised in the same way, mattered a lot less because the sheer level of publicity. And you got this sort of cycle where he would say something outrageous, the media would cover him, he would rise in the polls, the media would cover him some more, he'd say something out more outrageous and would squeeze everyone out. It got to the stage that Marco Rubio was reduced to making comments about parts of Donald Trump's anatomy, in the, who was very often favoured to win in the desperate efforts to get some media attention. So he wouldn't just, his campaign would just disintegrate because no one was covering him. But I think that was absolutely central. If that hadn't happened, more than any presidential candidate in the last half a century, he owes his election to the mainstream media. 
Secondly, uh, immigration, I think, is the elephant in the room that can't be ignored. When he ran for president, the majority of Republicans disliked him. The large majority said they'd never vote for him. That switched when he gave his first extremely contentious speech on the dangers of Mexican immigration. And then after that, you got a very different dynamic. And similarly, he dipped during the campaign, and then he came out with his comments on Islamic immigration. And again, his support, so his support solidified. And so what, the Republican Party has been very unusual within the Western world in being a supportive party of high levels of legal immigration, unusually prone to supporting some kind of recognition of illegal immigrants. So if you compare it with the British Conservatives or the Australian Liberals or the French Gaullists, definitely the French Gaullists, uh, or Forza Italia in Italy, it struck out. And I think, with a, to some degree, the better of hindsight, but I was kind of saying this beforehand, and I haven't been right much this year, so I'm going to lay some claim to prophecy on this front. It was a huge opportunity, and that's one Donald Trump grabbed. And then thirdly, luck. One should never rule out the role of contingency in events. And in particular, he had a divided field till quite late in the contest. If it had narrowed a lot quicker, I think he might have a great deal of trouble winning. Even once he was nominated, about half of Republicans were unhappy with him being chosen. So there was massive anti-Donald Trump support, but a huge plot, heavily based on immigration and media attention, and a divided opposition. So that's how he won the primary, which itself was an absolutely amazing, incredible event. So how did he win the general election? How did the, um, the, the most unlikely candidate lose to the most likely candidate in major party nominations? And also, why were the polls wrong? So I think one reason why we're all sitting around like this is there were polling error. And I think Tim's quite right to say the polling error wasn't actually that big. In fact, it was about the same polling <coughs> error that happened for Obama versus Romney. And there was a lot of sneering at the Romney campaign at the time because they've been saying, well, the polls might be slightly wrong and then it might be really close. And in the event, Obama actually did a bit better than the polls expected, so about 2% more. Well, basically, that's what happened this time. And when one combines that with the vagaries of the Electoral College, that just made Donald Trump president-elect of the United States. So what kind of factors explain that? Well, I think one thing one should look at is the power of the Republican Party. So one striking aspect of this election was how little ticket split, split ticket voting there is. Because, of course, in the United States, you have so many different offices. And actually, for example, the Senate seats, which were held up the same day, there were only two Senate seats where there was a massive variation between Donald Trump's vote and the vote for the Republican candidate of the ones that were remotely competitive. Ohio and Missouri. He ran massively behind in Ohio, massively ahead in Missouri. But most of them, it was extremely, it was extremely close. So I think one thing one should, I think, start facing is the possibility that not only is there not a Democratic majority, but for now, we'll see if this survives four or eight years of Mr. Trump, there might actually be a very small Republican majority in the United States for the first time since the 1930s. To run a candidate like Donald Trump and lose the popular vote narrowly and actually win overall suggests you're potentially in a very, very strong position electorally. I think another factor that is huge in his, in his role beyond the straightforward partisanship of the modern United States was the degree to which liberals and Democrats and Supreme Court vacancies scared the heck out of the church-going base of the religious right. So America has a very big gap in voting on church-going. It's a very recent gap. It didn't exist until the early 1990s. And contrary to the myth, it's not the biggest in the Western world. You get bigger gaps in Malta. A lot of the time, you get a bigger gap in Italy. Um, but it's much bigger than in any other Anglo-Saxon, English-speaking country. And... Um, and Donald Trump, for obvious reasons, some of which have been mentioned by both of my fellow panellists, is not a candidate to inspire huge enthusiasm in that group, evidently. And he also had all kinds of records. Now, one should be careful not to make it as different as you might think. So, for example, he used to be pro-choice in abortion. 
Actually, the last three Republican presidents all used to be pro-choice in abortion and switched to becoming pro-life before they'd become president. So in that sense, he represents a very long tradition um, of, of politicians of both parties switching as abortion's grown increasingly polarised. But it went well beyond that. But the um, particularly strong moves to um, attack various religious groups using various forms of anti-discrimination and mandates, the, um, the strong pressure for that, the open goal on the same-sex marriage ruling, um, which is an interesting question. If the Supreme Court had ruled in favour of that, I suspect Hillary Clinton would be president United and president-elect of the United States. So Anthony Kennedy is arguably responsible for Donald Trump's victory. The, um, and also the vacancy of the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court, in very simple terms, currently is four Conservatives, one moderate, four Liberals. And one of the Conservatives died, Justice Scalia. So in a way, it's like the legend of El Cid, where even when he was dead, El Cid still won a battle for the Spanish forces. That Justice Scalia, even, even dead, has won a victory for judicial and social conservatism because of the huge fear of Hillary Clinton being able to fill that vacancy. And I think not only was that hugely important at popular level, so something like 21% of American voters said Supreme Court was their number one issue they were voting on. And 57% of them voted for Donald Trump for president. But also, I think one reason you didn't get even more peeling away from the Republican elites, even more senior Republicans coming out against him, was the terror of, her, of Hillary Clinton filling the Supreme Court vacancy. And it's an interesting question. If Hillary Clinton said she'd appoint a moderate conservative for that vacancy again, I suspect she would have won. But Hillary Clinton, who, contrary to a lot of myth, I think is a very principled, very tough lady, was really keen to get as much of her policy agenda as she possibly could she was against a very weak Republican candidate, and she was going to take a risk, and she was going to push the policy agenda. So, for example, the Democrats came out for federal funding of abortions, which is the first time in history of the Democratic Party they did so. And, you know, uh, and there were risks when you pushed the envelope like that. And then finally, I think it was the power of immigration. And I put um, as an issue, we've seen this in Brexit, we've seen this in the British elections, we've seen this in the French elections, we're probably going to see this in the German elections. And one way this has been described is rebellion against the liberal order. But I think in many ways, even more so, it's rebellion against the way that order has changed. Huge levels of mass migration are relatively recent. They used to be common in the United States, but that was quite a long time ago. And so all across the Western world, you're seeing a massive backlash against that effect. And I personally think that was probably the biggest single reasons why the polls were wrong, where they failed to model the percentage of white, non-college-educated voters who would turn up, who are excited about issues, <coughs> primarily immigration. And people are talking about shy Republicans, but the problem is the seats where Hillary, states where Hillary Clinton did best, like New York, the polls were actually right or even underperformed her. It was in places, the places where Donald Trump most outperformed were places like West Virginia where the, or Wyoming, where the polls said he was going to win by about 20 points, and he actually won about 40 points. So you have to believe that all these people in West Virginia are hiding the fact they're voting for the guy their neighbour or their neighbours all want to vote for. So I think the most likely, and I think that also raises a question about broader polling error, which is to what degree do polls and issues of immigration or identity, to what degree do those polls have a systematic bias in favour of the liberal situation? Since when we have votes on the issues, you seem to get a more conservative result. It doesn't have to be very big to be quite significant. So where, so, um, so, and, and I think also broadly it shows the Republican establishment was a bit of a house of cards, that when we look back to elections that sit nominations that seem quite easy, for example Mitt Romney against Rick Santorum last time, Actually, it suggests they're a lot closer than they were. In fact, if Rick Santorum had just gone and given a speech about Mexicans pouring over the border and putting a few outrageous comments, maybe he would have won the nomination. So I'm being flippant, but actually, I think one has to see primaries as much more contingent as most scholars did beforehand. 
So where next for Donald? What's going to be true if Donald Trump is president? I think there are four related stories which will all be um, highly unpredictable. So I think we live in interesting times. One is what you might call the generic Republican agenda. The Republicans will control the presidency and Congress for the first time since 2006. Um, there's an enormous number of agendas and a huge range of issues from making America's abortion laws more like France's and less like Canada's, from um, restricting regulation, from reducing various forms of government spending. And Donald Trump has more or less said he agrees with most of this. Uh, whether he'll actually deliver, interesting question. To what there are, there are issues in the Senate where the Republican majority is small and always the Democrats, unless the Republicans change the rules, can block them. But I think at least for the, the next two years, quite a lot of that will happen. Another is where you might say Donald Trump is erratic, where he doesn't look like a, a normal Republican. One is immigration. And I think it's hard to think of a bigger sign that the, Demo the bipartisan consensus for high levels of immigration is sitting on sand with Donald Trump becoming president of the United States. So I'd be amazed if one didn't get a lot of action, partly for executive orders, and I suspect we'll get legislation as well. Another is free trade, where scepticism about the current free trade model is about the most consistent theme of Donald Trump's political pronouncements for the last 30 years. Having said that, the detail's very vague. So it'll be interesting what form, particularly if he has minions who are more free trade than he is himself, that will actually talk. Will it be a renegotiation of existing agreements or will it actually be pulling out massive tariff barriers? And then I think there are two... Like, one where I still want to pour cold water in is this idea that instead of just having a Republican presidential nominee, we have one who has, like, fascist tendencies, I think I broadly say. Um, a radical anti-Semite, a radical racist. And I think this, and people are probably going to want to come back to this question, has been wildly overblown. So I think just to take one example is the um, Stephen Bannon, who he's just appointed aide, has been mass widely accused of anti-Semitism. The guy has a, a site on the website he runs called Breitbart Jerusalem, which covers the Israeli side of the conflicts. He, um, his former boss is Jewish. Several of his closest aides are Jewish. The article which has got the most attention caught where he referred to someone as, where it was referred to someone as a renegade Jew was written by a Jewish guy and attacking that guy as being insufficiently pro-Jewish because they were backing Hillary Clinton for president. So it's a peculiar form of radical anti-Semitism that takes these kind of forms. On the other hand, we are talking about a guy with very different background, very little relevant experience, and a history of at least questionable business deals. So the worries about incompetence and corruption may or may not be right, but I think they are very well grounded. The, no, um, the notion that he's some kind of KKK guy is massively based on a huge range of, his, of hysteria on the subject. And of course, when you go and interview KKK people, are you connected to the President of the United States? There's a limit to how much they say, not at all, not at all. Please don't pay any attention to my tiny group of 25 people who no one cares about. Please, media, um, instead have a huge communication suggesting he's linked to the President of the United States. Um, and the biggest danger is you'll get a revival of that through all the coverage of this supposed link. So in conclusion, an amazing result, massively driven by backlash against the pro-immigration and the broader globalist uh, world order. Hugely surprising. Um, the traditional institutions of campaigns, I think, have to be reforced in their significance. And above all else, we live in a very unpredictable time for the future because we have somebody who is very, very hard to predict the trajectory of his actions. Thank you very much indeed.